0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today. I want to remind everybody on Skype that we do record these uh, messages. So uh, if you would, make sure your microphone is muted and your uh, camera is off. Otherwise, anything you say can and will be used against you. No, I'm just kidding. All right, let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that you gave him to us when we were your enemies that he died for our sins, was buried, and you raised him from the dead on the third day, so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior will never perish, but will have eternal life. And we thank you, Father, this morning that you've gathered us together as members of your family, members of the body of Christ, so that we can participate in the, in the learning and hearing of the word of God and in the fellowship with one another. And we also ask, Father, for your blessing and protection on the entire body of Christ in this country and around the world. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. We're going to jump right into the message this morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 1. Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 1. As you turn there, the title this morning comes from verse 1. He saw a man blind from birth. He, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw a man blind from birth. That's John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I must work the works of him. I know it says we, but we'll get back to that. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming. But no one can work. Well, I'm in the world. I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle. And he applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Silm, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. As we turn to chapter nine. And we see that this is a, a miracle. It's actually the sixth sign miracle. We haven't talked about this much lately, but remember, there are seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John that John records. They're, they're not only miracles, but they're miracles to but point to something even beyond the miracle itself. We're going to see this morning that this miracle of giving sight to a man blind from birth, is 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 actually an illustration of what jesus had said in chapter eight when he declared himself to be the light of the world um so so th- this is um this miracle okay has a lot of repercussions we're going to see exactly how great this miracle really is when we compare this to looking at the rest of the bible And understanding what it what this miracle of giving sight to the blind, especially someone who was blind from birth, really signifies. But again, this miracle of giving sight to the man blind from birth. It's a concrete illustration of an I am statement in chapter eight. If you could turn now to John, chapter eight, verse 12. John, chapter eight, verse 12. The number seven is very um, important very significant in the gospel of john there are all kinds of sevens in this we saw just a minute ago the sign miracles there are seven of those there are seven i am statements that jesus makes when he when he says when he then declares him to be something himself i am the bread of life i am the resurrection and the life those are always highly significant statements Other times he simply says, I am. And we saw that last week at the end of chapter eight. And that was an indication of his deity. I am was the name was the name personal name for the Lord in the Old Testament. Okay, let's read John chapter eight, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light, the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. It's ever again, but it will have the light of life, eternal life. In him was life and the life was the light of the world. That's John 1, 4. But he also, of course, contrasts light with darkness. They're opposites. And there's no more complete darkness than being blind. When you're blind, everything is darkness all the time. And, And that's the illustration that Jesus is going to use to give a concrete example of what it meant that he is the light of the world, that he is the light that gives life. And in this case, gives gives healing to the blind. Now, this statement that there's no more complete darkness than being blind, it's true in the natural realm. But it's just as true in the spiritual realm, if not more so. Please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter six, verse 23. Matthew, chapter six, verse 23. Jesus is fond of using concrete illustrations that everyone can relate to in the natural world, in in earthly existence, and then porting them over to illustrate a spiritual truth. He's doing it here. When he talks about blindness, when he actually enters into the blindness of the man, but then we can step back and understand that there's two levels that Jesus operates on. There's the natural level. Remember in chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000? That was at the natural, earthly, human level. 5,000 people who were hungry ate that day bread and fish. Then he moves, and then he says, I am the bread of life. So he takes that natural food and then transports it to the heavenly realm and talks about the fact that he is the ultimate bread that came down from heaven. Greater than the, even the manna in the Old Testament that fed the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And we see the same thing here. We see Jesus talking about the eye, talking about darkness. And now he's talking about spiritual matters. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now here, again, on the natural level, a bad eye here, he is talking about blindness. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. But then he goes on, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Again, Matthew six twenty-three, he begins with a principle from from, from our natural existence. If you are if you're blind, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you think about it, the only way that light can get into the our brain is through our eyes. And if they're blind, then there's there's no light at all coming into us that's the natural realm but then he ports it over to the spiritual realm because then he says if then the light that is in you is darkness now he's no longer talking about natural light at that point he's talking about spiritual light he's talking about people who are spiritually blind they think that they have the truth but it's all lies if the light that you think is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? How great is that darkness? In other words, spiritual darkness is even worse than physical blindness. Okay. So that's where we need to see that Jesus operates on two levels, the natural and the spiritual. He always now he, he would rather, it uh, is his nature to talk about things that are heavenly, things that are spiritual. But he understands that. Human beings operate in the on the earthly realm. And so he has to start there to teach us spiritual principles from what teaching is always from what you know to what you don't know. And that's what he does all the time. Okay, let's go back to the Gospel of John, chapter nine, and we'll pick it up again in verse one. Back to John, chapter nine, starting in verse one. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. When we were last with Jesus at the end of chapter 8, remember he had just declared that he is the great I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. At that point, the Jews knew for certainty that he was declaring himself to be God. And at that point, they wanted to stone him and kill him. But it was not yet his time to die. And therefore, He kind of went away. He kind of blended in and left. And that's where we left him last time. Now, here we pick things up and now it just says as he passed by. Now, you know, to our natural mind, we figure, well, chapter nine comes right after chapter eight. As he passed by, it must have been right after he left the temple. But we've seen this before where there's often a gap in time. That is that is kind of not actually explicitly identified. But as in other cases, if you look at the Greek, you'll, find, you, you'll understand that that phrase, as he passed by, is a generic f- f- phrase in the Greek. It says nothing at all about how much time has passed. All we can say about when this event in chapter 9, this, he- this healing of the man who was born blind, is that it occurred sometime between the Feast of Booths, which we first saw in chapter 7, And the the Feast of the Dedication, which we will see in chapter 10. Now, by the way, the Feast of the Dedication is what today we call Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not described, mentioned in the Old Testament. It's only mentioned here in the Gospel of John. That's a nice witnessing tool for Jewish people, by the way. In any event, this is the this is that we know somewhere in that period of time between the Feast of Booths. Remember, was a fall feast. And then the Feast of the Dedication, as today, it's a wintertime feast. So if you think about it, you have, let's say, September, when the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles occurred, and you have December, Feast of the Dedication, Hanukkah. It could have occurred any time between that. In other words, it could have been October 1st. It could have been December 1st. And the reason why that I mentioned this this morning is because we're going to see that the time element itself is going to become more and more pressing, significant. You feel it more as we get closer and closer to the time when Jesus is going to be betrayed and then put on the cross and die. And we're going to see this morning how that time period starting here becomes really short, really urgent and, and uh, not only for Jesus, of course, but whether they understood it or not, also for the Jewish people. So again, as he passed by, sometime between what we saw in John 7, 2 I'm going to put this up in the interest of time. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths was near. All of chapter 7 and chapter 8 occurred during the Feast of, of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, that whole period of time. Interestingly, by the way, um, we, 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 we see the, the disciples here at the beginning of chapter 9, we read about it. And it's interesting that the disciples are not mentioned at all in chapters 7 and 8. Not mentioned at all. By the way, neither is there a miracle in chapter, nor in chapter 7 or 8. There's no miracles in chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's pretty much all dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, mostly. Okay. And disciples aren't mentioned. Whether or not they're there, we don't know. But they, But John again puts the spotlight on them here in chapter 9 as Jesus performs another miracle. I point that out because the first audience for Jesus's miracles was his disciples. And you can see that they're there. They'll be there in chapter 11 again when Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the grave. And that tells us something about these sign miracles. On the one hand, they're definitely documented by John as an evangelistic tool. In other words, to make it crystal clear to anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the son of God. On the other hand, it's also give a question. honey. <laughs> On the other hand, it's also uh, teaching for the disciples. So that they they would also be rooted and grounded in the truth about their Lord so that they be built up and then become what they became which is evangelist. So there's both. And, and of course, that's why we're studying the Gospel of John now. I, 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 I presume, that I'd never be presumptive, but for the most part, we here are believers in Christ, right? In other words, we are no longer, if you're a believer in Christ, you're no longer turning to the Gospel of John or being turned to the Gospel of John to learn who Jesus is so that you can believe in him. But even after we believe in Christ, we need, we need to be reminded again And again, and again, who he is. And and that's what this whole Gospel of John is about. Remember, one question. Who is Jesus? And, And again, in this chapter, we're going to see the simple but powerful answers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, you might say, well, why does he have to keep repeating it in his audience? Because his audience is mostly unbelievers, number one. And what's going to happen is they're going to be rejecting that message over and over and over again. All right. That'll be their own indictment. Right. They heard the word and did not believe it. But also in in the context of Jesus, real ministry with real people and his disciples, they're brought along, too. They're not most of them are not totally convinced that he is who he says he is until, well, for example, Thomas thomas we're going to see even in the even after jesus was risen from the dead doesn't believe it doesn't believe that jesus rose from the dead now if he if he were understanding that jesus is the son of god and the messiah and that every word that he speaks comes from his father he would have known a long time ago that jesus was going to have to die and be raised from the dead but he didn't so not only do you have again i was talking i talked about this last week you have the movement of the of the unbelievers, the Jews not all Jewish people but the leadership more and more resistant to Jesus hostile to him right but then you also have the disciples who as they as they spend time with him more and more they get stronger and more convinced of who he is like Peter was the first probably uh, actually that's not even true even in the even in the first chapter we saw where Nathaniel already got it right you are the Christ you are the Son of the Living God. Um, but again, Peter in the middle, we know who you are, Thomas at the end. So there's this development. There's two opposite developments, the pushing back and the rejection of Jesus. At the same time, those who believe in him and are being strengthened in their faith. OK, so again, this event that we're studying this morning, the, the, the healing of the blind man occurred sometime between the Feast of Booths documented in chapter seven, verse two And and next chapter after this one, John chapter 10, verse 22, where it says at that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. Those are the only two markers that we have from verse chapter seven through chapter 10. Okay, so at some point in time between these two events, between October, uh, September and December in today's calendar, between the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Dedication, this great miracle was performed. All right. Are you still in John chapter nine? Good. Good. So we see in verse one again, Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. Both Jesus and his disciples walked by this man. They all saw this man. But what was going on in the hearts of the disciples was very different from what was going on in in, in the heart of Jesus at this time. We'll see that play right out. All right. And when we get to verse two. We're going to see what's in the heart and in the thinking of the disciples. And then we're going to see from there forward how Jesus looked at this. And, of course, Jesus understood it completely. He saw it in terms of the, the compassion that this man needed. That's on the that's on the level of that, that his apostles should have understood. But then, of course, it goes way beyond that where he, where he then points again to his identity through the miracle that he performs. Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, if you think about it, if Jesus and the disciples knew that he was blind from birth, so in other words, this was already common knowledge, okay? Jesus takes notice of this man, says nothing. His disciples, on the other hand, look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, how, what is the best way to take care of this man who clearly needs help and he's helpless is that what he says they say no rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind in other words they could they they're using the blind man as an object an object to understand some kind of theological principle that they may have been debating about suffering and sin Totally ignoring the real suffering that's in front of them. By the way, his disciples, again, used the plight of this man to ask a religious question. I say religious because it clearly wasn't a gracious question. It was a religious question. And they thought Jesus was, and he was, of course, an expert on the matters of the law. And they thought that is a perfect time to ask him something that's been on their mind. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That's a really interesting statement that they made. I mean, on the one hand, all they want to do is pin blame on somebody. On the other hand, this man was born blind from birth, from birth. So how could they possibly think that he sinned in order that he would then become born blind? What would that mean? It meant he had to have sinned in the womb, right, Bef- before he was born. Now, of course, that's ridiculous, although I will say at, at that point in time, that wasn't something that some of the Jewish rabbis and Pharisees believed. They, they misinterpreted as they always were, scriptures in the Old Testament. So they actually thought it was possible that, that, a, that an infant in the womb could commit sins. Interesting. But again... He, the disciples, they see the plight of this man, they ignore it, they want to ask a religious question, they want to have a principle validated that they thought, and oh, by the way, before we get on our high horse, it's the same today, we, and even in an honest way, we ask the same question today, related to suffering and sin, and who's to blame for the sin and the suffering. But it's a very legalistic assumption, right? Very legalistic. Here's the assumption. If someone has an affliction, it must be the result of sinning. If someone has an affliction, it might it must be the result of sinning. That's that's really what their unspoken assumption is when they say who sinned that he would be born blind. If someone has an affliction of any kind, it must be the result of sinning. Now, we it's not we we think about this as an if then as a cause and effect. And it's always something where the, this this thinking always wants to blame somebody for the fact that they're suffering and affliction. By the way, probably the most egregious example of this in the Old Testament was in the life of Job, who had incredible affliction and 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 he was he really was innocent. okay We know that he was the most righteous man on the earth at the time and that the reason that he went through the afflictions he did, was because Satan was calling into question the fact that anybody could honor and worship and obey God if they weren't getting something out of that. Right? They had their own legalist. Satan has own. He's the initial legalist anyway. Um, and he had his, by the way, the word devil, diabolos, okay, means diabolical. Satanus means um, attorney. I may have that backwards. But one of his names means attorney, by the way. Is it, I, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Satan. So, so um, he was the original legalist. Okay, and in in in, the, in in Job, he's the one who is actually responsible for all the affliction: Job losing his family, losing his wealth, getting getting probably skin cancer all over his body, and he was totally innocent. His friends didn't think so. His friends kept saying, "You must have done something." You know, you must have done something really bad in order to, to, to deserve all of this that's happening to you. Why don't you just stop and think about how sinful you are? And then maybe the Lord will have mercy on you. I and mean, That was their attitude. But let's be honest about this. We can surely point the finger to Job's friends or the, to the disciples. But we do think the same way at times. We think the same way that if some if we see suffering or affliction, or poverty, or whatever, we step back and we say, OK, whose fault is it? And oftentimes what we want to do is blame the person who's actually suffering. We see a homeless man on the street. And let's face it, our first thought sometimes, maybe even usually is, I wonder what he did to end up in that state. Right? Don't we think that? Let's be honest. That's what we think. You find out somebody has a lung cancer, and you just assume he's a smoker. By the way, it's not a bad assumption. Something like 75 percent of the people who have lung cancer have worse smokers, but not all of them. And so we, we make that automatic connection. Let's find how we can blame the person's behavior to explain the suffering he's in now. Somebody dies of covid today and most people say, what, that's their own fault. They could have gotten the vaccine. They probably weren't wearing their mask. So it's very it's very common human thing to do. To place blame on an individual who's suffering. By the way, it's easiest to do that. You see, that way we can be blind to the suffering. You see, if we say it's his fault, now we don't have to do anything about it. Now we don't have to be compassionate. That's one thing. Let's be honest, right? We want to kind of ignore it, put it aside. We also want to put it in a category that excludes us. You see, if we see suffering and we really understand that there's many reasons for it, well, that opens up the possibility of us also going through the same thing. On the other hand, if we just blame somebody and we say they did that, I won't do that. I'll never suffer in that way. It's it's, that's the reason most of the time that we do it. If we're honest, we try to be blind to their suffering and convince ourselves that this is not going to happen to us. So that that but that that's the question out there begs the big question. Right. One of the biggest questions in life is why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? And, you know, the the general principle here, the general explanation for why there's suffering in death in this world actually is sin. It actually is. But it's one sin. The sin of Adam. We're not going to go to these passages. We've been there many times. But the Lord, in chapter two of the book of Genesis, told Adam, if you if you eat from the tree of the knowledge, uh, eat of the fruit, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you will die. He ate and the human race now is in a condition of suffering and death. Not only the human race, but all of creation is all of creation fell when Adam fell. So if somebody says, why are there earthquakes? Blame Adam. (laughs) Right. Now, not only that, but we're all born now in sin. We're all born sinners. We're all born um, dead in our trespasses and sins. So in that sense, in the the global sense, it really is sin that causes suffering and death. And it's certainly true at times people, we bring suffering upon ourselves. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you if you if you miss work for three weeks in a row without any good reason, you're probably going to get fired. For example, you know, if you if you eat at McDonald's for three months in a row, you're probably going to get sick. Now I'm not blaming everybody, but that there is a connection in the many many times between things that we do that we shouldn't be doing and some kind of suffering and sin and suffering and affliction. Okay, however, it does not follow from any of this. Neither the global picture of sin being the cause. Or even the principle or the observation that many times people suffering is due to their own mistakes. But what we can't do is make that a universal principle for all suffering and all affliction. That is not true. Not every affliction is a result of a sin that that individual committed. Not at all. By the way, this that principle, let's face it, that's about as legalistic as you can get. If you're going around and saying every suffering has to be as a result of the sin that that person committed. So Jesus uh, now at this point speaks and he speaks in response to that, that errant thinking of his disciples that would have perhaps if that had carried the day, it would have they would have all passed on and said, "Eh, that's his own fault. All right. Jesus answered, however, it was neither that look at verse three. It was neither it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now. I'm sparing you all the Greek this morning, but it, what it's really saying is, is the so that can have two meanings. It could on the one hand, it could mean that the purpose of it was so that God's works could be displayed in him. On the other hand, it could also be the result. As a result, the works of God could be displayed. Now, we can debate which it is, but you know, with God, the purpose and result are same, right? I have planned it. I will do it. Okay, so so God, both, of course, we know that nothing happens without his permission, but we also know that God can turn the curse into a blessing, and he does it all the time. He did it with Joseph in in Genesis when his brothers sold him into slavery and he went through all kinds of affliction. He was in prison, falsely accused. And at the end, he was raised up to second in command of the entire um, Egyptian empire. And then he ultimately rescued the rest of his family. God can turn a curse into a blessing. It's the same in our own lives. God can use our afflictions to become the very means by which he blesses us it displays his glory let's think about paul in second corinthians chapter 12 when he said i've i've been given a thorn in the flesh on the one hand it was to buffet him so that he would not become too proud on the other hand it was also a way in which god could be glorified because he then turns to he then the lord says to, to paul my grace is sufficient for And that was a lesson he had to learn. Paul learned this lesson uh, many times. He also learned it at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. When he said, and this is a comfort, by the way, to all of us, he said, I despaired of life. I despaired of life. And and I just point that out, too, as a comfort because, you know, a lot of times Christians feel like, well, I can never have a, a depressing thought. I could never possibly ever have the thought that I might even commit suicide. Right? Well, guess what? You know, we're all vulnerable, and Paul was vulnerable. I despaired of life. It was so bad. The suffering was so overwhelming. But then he said, you know what? The reason was so that I may see to never depend on myself, but on God who always delivers me. And now, not only did that comfort Paul, he then was able to comfort other people by saying the same thing. So the principle, again, is that, oops, I guess I don't have that. The principle is, again, that God uses afflictions. Even the very worst, to become the means by which he blesses us and displays his glory. Never more so than when Jesus Christ went through the worst suffering of all on the cross. And and, and God used that in order to bless the entire world and also to display his glory to the max. All right, let's continue. Go to John chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. John 9, let's continue in John 9. Now, at the beginning of verse four, I know the first word in in most translations, unless you have a King James, by the way, is we. We. Well, again, not to not to bore you with detail, but if you look at the, the Greek, okay, there's a Greek there's a Greek text that the King James is based on. And then there's the Greek text that is now used for the modern translations. Don't get into the trap of thinking either or. Well, I'm either going to be a, what's called the Nestle outline again. I'm either going to be the modern scholarly text or they're on the other extreme. No, the King James is the only way to go. Well, the reality is, is that these texts are all available. And there are times when you have to see which of those actually makes sense in the context. OK, not only that, but a lot of times there's there's uh, basically. OK. They flip. A, I hate to tell you all this because I don't want it to, to loosen your faith in the scriptures at all. But when people are putting together the modern texts, the scholars sometimes it's like a really close call, and it's not exactly this. But they can flip a coin to say, "Well, we'll go in this way or that." Okay. So, by the way, you can see why some people don't want anything to do with that and want to stick with the King James. However, that's kind of ignoring a lot, a lot of evidence that we have from the, from the Greek manuscripts. Was that, that was way too much, wasn't it? On daylight savings time Sunday morning. All of that to say that we really should be I. Now, step back for a minute and say, okay, so is this just arbitrary, John? Did you just flip your own coin and come up with that? Well, for one thing, the King James has it I. But in addition to that, if you think about the total context here, Again and again and again, Jesus is going to say, well, my father's working, I'm at work. I do the works that my father has ordained for me. And it's interesting, if you look, at, try to find the we word throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, it's never talking about the we doing the works that God has ordained. Never. So this is an out, would be an outlier. And it totally misses the context that the whole rest of all of chapter 9, really, is who is Jesus? And the focus is on what he now. Remember, but he hasn't performed the miracle yet in verse four. So he's going to set up the miracle. If he said we, it would mean that all the apostles would then come on hand and perform this miracle at some point. By the way, this is this is this is a miracle that nobody else in the Bible ever performs than Jesus Christ. Nobody else heals the blind, gives the blind sight. Jesus is the only one. Alright, so this would be a inappropriate place for we to be here. To be I. I must do the works of my father who sent me as long as it is day. Again, John 9, 4. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse five is basically a parallel verse to verse four. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as in his day, night is coming when no one can work. This word I, it makes so much more sense. Again, it's how the King James has it. But not only that, it really it really changes inter- our understanding of what comes after it. I'm going to show you that. Because if you think it's wheat, then you can associate the day and the night with with we all right when in reality we're going to see the day and the night is totally with regard to jesus and his ministry okay the father sends jesus to perform the works that he ordained now what works what works well again in chapter nine it's going to be the work of the miracle of of giving sight to the blind man but in general again and again and again the works that the father gave jesus to do had two purposes one was to reveal the identity of the son again and again. You know, people would look at the works and say some people wouldn't say that was a means for me believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of God. At the end of chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus turns that around and he says, basically, you've seen my works, my miracles all over again. You refuse to believe. That's one thing. The identity of the son. The second one is to bring glory to the father. Those are the two elements, the two purposes of the works that the father gave the son to perform, to reveal the identity of the son, Jesus Christ, and to bring glory to his father. Please turn to John chapter 11, verse four. John chapter 11, verse four. This is the seventh sign. We're not there, of course, yet. We're still in chapter 9. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to see the greatest sign of all. And of course, for those of you who have been reading, or even if you haven't, you know the gospel, you know the great miracle of Jesus basically raising Lazarus from the dead, calling him forth from the grave. That resulted, by the way, in many, many, many people believing in Jesus Christ. So much that the Jews panicking, the leaders said, this is way out of control. Not only do we have to get rid of Jesus, now we have to get rid of Lazarus, too. That was how powerful, as you might imagine, calling forth somebody from the grave really is. But before that, John, Jesus says this, John 11, 4. But when Jesus heard this, he heard that basically that Lazarus was sick. Actually, he knew that Lazarus had already died. Okay, but he says this. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Again, the principle, the works that, that, that the Father gave Jesus to perform had two purposes. One was to reveal the identity of the Son. The other was to give glory to God. And we see both of those here in chapter 11, verse 4, which is why I wanted to show it to you. This sickness, Lazarus, is sick and then dead, won't we'll end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. All right, let's go back to John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. John 9, 4 and 5. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am light to the world unless I change that this is the Greek day there's no the all right there's no the in this pattern in other words it's different from John 8:12 in John 8:12 I am the light of the world here in I mean John 8 yeah, 8 12 here in chapter 9 verse 5 I am light chapter 8 verse 12 the emphasis is on I I am the light of the world. Here in chapter 9, verse 5, the emphasis on light. Basically in the Greek it says, light I am being to the world. Now what's the difference? Well, one is declaring who Jesus is for all time. I am the light of the world. Here though, it's talking about what, the, what, what he is doing as light to the world. Because he'll always be the light of the world. But here he's going to say in verse 5, while I'm in the world. I am light to the world, which is which is then, then you said, well, when he is not in the world, then in this, whatever he's talking about is no longer occurring. So that's really important to understand that. Well, I am in the world. I am light to the world. But let's begin with the phrase in verse four, as long as it is day. Again, I, I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Hmm. Night is coming when no one can work. What did Jesus mean by? As long as it is day. Again, this is another case where he begins in the natural realm. At least back then, you know, Thomas Edison hadn't done his thing yet and there wasn't light at night and it was very difficult to work at night because you couldn't really see too well. So in the natural realm, that was certainly true. But Jesus really isn't talking about the natural realm. He's talking about himself and spiritual principles. God's will. All right. When he says, "I am," when he says, "As long as it is day," what he means by day is it's that time which the Father ordained for him to complete his work on Earth. Remember, I was saying the time was getting short. How if, 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 it, if this was any time close to the Feast of the Dedication, which it may have been, or even if it was right after the Feast of Booths, there's not a lot of time now between this. And when Jesus is going to die on the cross, because that's he's going to die on the cross the, the following spring it, at Passover. All right. So the time is getting short. But, but overall, the day is the, the time that was ordained by the father for Jesus to complete his work on earth, to to, to, to complete his ministry, which I will also tell you was primarily to the Jewish people. There, there are a couple of times. One, really, when Jesus has a ministry to the Gentiles, and I'm thinking in particular of the Samaritan people, right? That was, but really, for the most part, his ministry was directed towards the Jewish people. What this is telling you is that time is not only running out on the, on the days of Jesus' ministry, it's also running out for the Jewish people. It's also running out for the Jewish people. That, again, is why it's talking about the works of Jesus. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day for the time that the father has ordained for me to complete my ministry, my work on earth. (coughs) Night is coming when no one can work. And again, night is getting closer and closer. By chapter nine, this day is drawing close to an end. We know this because we're gonna look in a minute at chapter 17, John, where we're gonna see the night before he died, and Jesus tells his father, he's finished the work. The night before he died, he tells his father he's finished the work. That's now you might say, What about the cross? Well, here's the thing: he's talking about his public ministry. Okay, and we're going to, if you study if you have been keeping up and reading the Gospel of John, You'll, you, you should realize or hope you go back and see that his public ministry ends in chapter 12. Chapter 19, he dies on the cross. Chapter 18 are the preliminaries to that. Chapters 13 through 17, he's alone with his disciples for the first three, chap- four chapters, and then just along with the father. So really and truly his work, his ministry, his public ministry ends at the end of chapter 12, ends on that Passover evening when he gathers his, his disciples together, goes into the upper room. That's it for his ministry to the Jews, for his public ministry, for him being in the world, for him being light to the world, the world there meaning unbelievers, the world of unbelievers. Let's go now to John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, so you can see what I'm talking about. John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. This now is the night before he goes to the cross. This now is the chapter where he is alone with the Father and the Father only. He is praying to the Father. John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. Notice what he says. I glorified you on the earth. And notice what's next. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The works that he was given to do. included his miracles as well as his teaching to the world. Primarily to the Jewish people. (coughs) And then in chapter 17, verse 4, he says, I've done it all. I glorified you on the earth, Father, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. See, it's between the two of them with the glory which I had with you, Father, before the world was. Now he's totally in the in the, in the in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm. He's pointing back to what we saw in chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus, the son of God, as the son of God, had glory that he's shared with the Father even before the world was. And now he's asking in Jesus as the God-man to once again, the Father glorify him, and that will also give glory to the Father. And, and of course, that's going to happen when Jesus dies on the cross. That's what he's talking about. But, again, his ministry to the world will be over at the end of chapter 12. As chapter 12 ends, it is just before the Passover. And that's it for the public ministry of the the Lord, his ministry to the world. And as I mentioned already, that also means that his ministry to the Jews will be over as well. So in chapter 9, time is getting short for the world to have the ministry of Christ showing showing them the miracles, preaching who he is, but also for the Jewish people. Look at John chapter 12, verse 35. Just back up to chapter 12. The chapter of most urgency. It's just before the Passover. It's really at the tail end. If you want to talk about a day, you know, it's, night is falling. The sun is setting right here. It'll As soon as the sun will set, the, the light, you will no longer be light for the world. John twelve thirty five. So Jesus said to them, this is the Jewish people now, the Jewish leadership primarily. For a little while longer, the light is among you. For a little while longer, the light is among you in the world. And again, in the world, not, not simply earth, but even more relevantly, the world of unbelievers. Walk while you have the light. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, while I am still in my public ministry, believe in the light. Believe in me so that you may become sons of light, so that you may become children of my father, even though you've been children of the devil. By the way, this is the last time that light is mentioned as a word. If you look at light in the Gospel of John, it it is not mentioned again after chapter 12. Right? Jesus is still the light of the world, but he's not light to the world after chapter 12. Okay, let's go back again now to chapter 9. And continue. Chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. Where we've been. I must work the works of him who sent me. John chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am light to the world. When Jesus leaves the world... Right? and that's at the end of chapter 12, the, right before the Passover, the world will no longer have the light. He will no longer be light to the world in that sense, meaning his public ministry is finished. He will no longer be light in the sense of giving the Jewish unbelievers, but, but the, primarily the opportunity to believe in the light so that they may become sons of light. That, that's closing. That time is closing. When he leaves the world, And by the way, this is not his ascension. This is when he no longer has a public ministry to the world of unbelievers. You know, even after Jesus is risen from the dead, when the father raises his from the dead, it's not a public ministry. As a matter of fact, if you were to read chapters 20, 21 and 22, you will see that it's all about a private thing between Jesus and his disciples. You know, it's pretty amazing to me, but it's true. Now, when Jesus rises, is raised from the dead, he doesn't go and show himself to the world. It's private. He shows himself to his disciples, to a few people. All right. There are 500 disciples. But he's not going into the city of Jerusalem and saying, here I am. I'm the Messiah. Look, I was risen from the dead. It's, it's almost exclusively he goes to believers. Almost exclusively. So his public ministry to the world is over. Before he goes to the cross. And when that happens, when he leaves the world, he will no longer be light to that world. Then it will be night. It's over. What that's telling us is that time is short for Israel to receive their Messiah. Remember, Jesus Christ, two things. Identity. I am am the Messiah. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. The time for the Jewish people to receive him as their Messiah is almost finished here. It's almost finished. All right. Now, the blind. As I mentioned before, for, the, for blind people, it's always night in the natural realm. But that's also true in the spiritual realm. The Jewish nation remained as a nation, not individuals. They remained spiritually blind during the ministry of Jesus Christ. Spiritually blind, they never saw who he really was. They refused to remember. He said we saw that in chapter eight because I speak the truth. You don't believe me. They were full of darkness. They were they were children of of the devil. Let's go back to John 12 one more time. Let's look at verses 37 to 40. This is the last time Jesus is going to preach to the world in particular to the Jewish nation, before he goes to the cross. John 12, 37. Notice what he says about his work. John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them. John records seven of them specifically. But he's going to say at the end that if I were to write everything that Jesus said and did, all the books in the world couldn't hold it. I don't think he was exaggerating, by the way. I don't think he was exaggerating at all. You know, for example, we know in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he did lots of other miracles. Right? And there are times where, where it says he, he, he did, at one point in time, he did all kinds of miracles. And it lists some of them, you know, healing the sick, get getting rid of demons, and, and opening the eyes of the blind, and so forth. So we have we have no idea other than by a reference how many miracles he performed. And again, it was for the Jewish people, first and foremost. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, notice verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Which Isaiah spoke, Lord. Lord. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. They were spiritually blind, and they remained so. Throughout the public ministry of Jesus Christ, back to John chapter nine. I will start in verse five. John nine five. Now we've been studying the the, the prophet Isaiah Thursdays, and and again and again that same subject of blindness and seeing occurs in the in, in the in the prophet Isaiah. We'll see a little more of that. Today, John 9, 5. When while I am in the world, I am light to the world. When he has said this, when he has said who he is again and what he's doing in the world, he spat on the ground. Now don't forget that he's passing by and sees a man born blind. He then talks about the spiritual significance in terms of his identity. And then he says, John tells us, he, Jesus spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle. And applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him. Does he say to him. I am about to open your eyes. Does he say that? Does he Does he declare to everybody. Come see a miracle. No. He, he says one thing. He says go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he doesn't say. Wash in the pool of Siloam. So that your eyes will be open. He doesn't turn to his disciples and say. Watch what's going to happen. He doesn't. He just sends him he does this rather peculiar thing of spitting and then making clay and putting it on his on the, on the eyelids and then he says go wash that off that's it that's it and then so then look at verse seven again he said to him go wash in the pool of Siloam," which is translated sent so he went away and washed and he came back seeing by the way here we go with the greek it doesn't mean he came back to jesus uh, it just meant he went away somewhere else in other words that he it was a totally private miracle at this point anyway jesus said nothing to anybody else that he was going to heal him he basically puts the car our lips, sends him to the pool and that's it and and by the way we we're not going to see jesus for a while after verse seven because from then forward, the focus is now going to be on this man who has been given sight and then his interactions with his neighbors, with the Pharisees. Right? Quite different from the miracle when Jesus had the layman um, at the pool of Bethesda gave him ability to walk again. Because there, almost immediately, the focus went on Jesus. But here, as we're going to see, the focus then is on the blind man himself. Which, by the way, is a man of impeccable integrity and accuracy when he describes anything in this chapter. Why? Because he's the great witness to Jesus in terms of the human realm in this chapter. So he sends him to the pool to wash his eyelids. And then when he when the when the man did that, he then had his sight again. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in darkness your whole life and you feel a man put clay on your eyelids and then you wash it off and you can see that must have been an unprecedented, incredible thing for a human being that could have happened to them. A mighty miracle, but done without any fanfare. Jesus didn't tell the man or anybody else, including his disciples, that he was going to heal this blind man. Nevertheless, for us, for us. And later on, for the people, giving sight to the blind man, it proved without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is A, the Son of God, and B, the Jewish Messiah. Again, it showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God and the Jewish Messiah. Please turn to Psalm 146, verse 8. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And believing may have light, the light of life, the light of eternal life. Look at Psalm chapter 146, verse 8. Let's see what the Old Testament has to say about opening the eyes of the blind. Opening the eyes of the blind. We'll start in Psalm 146. And I want you to ask the question, who can do this? Who can do this? Look at Psalm 146, verse 8. Very simple, who can do this? The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one and only one who can open the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Who can open the eyes of the blind? The Lord, and only the Lord. In the Old Testament, there is not one instance of a man, however great, a prophet, the prophet Elijah, who did lots of miracles, not one instance of a man opening the eyes of the blind. That's why, again, we'll see this later in chapter nine, when that when that man regained his sight, he's going to say it's never been heard that a man opens the eyes of a blind man. It's true. All right. Everything that guy said was accurate and insightful, actually. okay. in in the Old Testament, there is not one instance of a man ever opening the eyes of the blind. It was reserved to Yahweh, the Lord, to be able to do that. Now, what is in the Old Testament is prophecy, of course. We've seen it already today in the book of Isaiah. And part of that prophecy is about the coming Messiah. What will happen when the Messiah comes? What will he do? He will give sight to the blind. Old Testament prophets prophesied this of the Messiah. This is why it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah based on this one miracle of opening the eyes of the blind. Look at Isaiah chapter 35. Please go to Isaiah 35, verse 5. Isaiah 35 is a wonderful, amazing description of the conditions in the kingdom when Jesus comes back as the Messiah. But but at this time, of course, the Jewish people knew nothing about the two comings of the Messiah. See, that wasn't revealed till the, the New Testament. Isaiah 35, 5. Then, when? When the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Go to chapter 42. Go forward a few chapters to Isaiah 42, verse 6. Again, we've studied this passage recently. There are servant songs, four of them. Remember that? Those of you have been keeping up with the study of Isaiah. This is one of them. This is, the, this is the first one. This is about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord speaking. God the Father really speak. I am the Lord. I have called you, the Messiah, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you, the Messiah, as a covenant to the people, as a light. While I am in the world, I am light to the world as a light to the nations. And notice verse seven, to open blind eyes and bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness. There's that darkness. There's that blindness from the prison. There's a spiritual application, of course, that he's going to take those who are spiritually blind and open their spiritual eyes. That's the Old Testament. Only God can. Open the eyes of the blind, but the prophecy in the future, the Messiah will be able to do it and only him. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus declares that he is this promised Messiah. We've seen this many times already in the Gospel of John. That's why the Gospel of John is overwhelming with evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And yes, I keep repeating it, but I keep repeating it because there's a lot of attacks on that. Remember that the attacks on the truth of the Bible and the gospel in particular are threefold. One, on Jesus' person, two, on the gospel, and three, on the Holy Spirit. Okay? But none more than attacks on who Jesus is. Some say he was never man, some say he's not God, many say the Jewish people as a whole say he's not the Messiah. Again and again and again. That's why we, as his witnesses have to be rooted and grounded and hear it again and again and be able to point to 25 times in the gospel of john that points that jesus is the son of god and he declares that he's also the promised messiah who gives sight to the blind as we close i'd like you to turn to the gospel of luke gospel of luke chapter 7 verse 20 John, Luke chapter 7, verse 20. You know, we've, we saw in the Gospel of John the central importance of John the Baptist early on as a witness to the Messiah, to Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. Here in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, now John the Baptist has already been put in prison by Herod. He's in prison. Okay, Jesus knows this. As a matter of fact, Some disciples of John the Baptist have come to Jesus with a question. And that's that's how we begin in chapter seven, verse 20 of the gospel of Luke. When these men, these are disciples of John in context, when these men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one? That means, are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? human doubt even john the baptist it is discouragement in prison he needed to be built up because he's human to be built up and begin assured once again yes this man that i call the lamb of god he is the messiah my life's is over but i need to know again verse 21 at that very time notice this at that very time the very time that the disciples of john were with him he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to what's the next word? I know it's late. I know you guys are waiting for me to close, but let's try it again. At that very time, verse 21, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And here's our subject. He gave sight to many who were blind. And he then, he then did all of it. Here we go again. Okay. I'll show you guys myself. Here are all the miracles are performing. And then he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have just seen and heard. What does he mention first? The blind receive sight. Why? Because that was the one sign in the prophets, especially Isaiah, that you have the Messiah among you. He's the one and the only one who gives sight to the blind. Sure. Now, he he did also let the the lame to walk, lepers cleansed and so forth. Now, if you look at the Old Testament and even in the New, there were other people who healed right, in great ways, including Elijah, including the disciples when he sent them out. And they got rid of evil spirits themselves. But no one had ever given sight to the blind. That's what I wanted you to see. Again, the blind received sight as well as the lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, dead raised up. And the poor of the gospel preached to them, given sight to the blind. And I hope you can see just here from verse 21, Jesus performed this miracle of giving sight to the blind quite a few times. As a matter of fact, if you look at the gospel records of Jesus healing, he he gave sight to the blind more often than any other category of miraculous healing. Why? To make it crystal clear that he is the Messiah. And again, there's, just like there's no recorded instance in the Old Testament of anybody giving sight to the blind, neither is there any instance recorded in the New Testament of anyone other than Jesus doing this. The apostles never did it. None of the other disciples, John the Baptist, none of the saints, one person, Jesus Christ. Why? To make it clear, to isolate, and put the spotlight on him. The sign of the Messiah is he'll give sight to the blind. Jesus is the only one who ever did it. Guess what? He's the Messiah. Truly, also, this man is the son of God. Because only God, only Yahweh, can give sight to the blind. Again, the whole Gospel of John written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, who is the word, your son, son of god made flesh we thank you father that you have provided overwhelming proof again and again and again in the gospel of john that jesus is exactly who he says he is the jewish messiah the christ and the son of god god in the flesh father we ask this morning that as we leave today that we would be we seeing that the spirit is building us up more and more in the truth of who your son is and in the truth that whoever believes in him as the savior, the one who died for their sins, was buried in the one that you raised from the dead, will never perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel. This is the truth. We are witnesses of this today. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Once again, reminder, Bible study this Thursday. March 17th, happy St. Patrick's Day to those who celebrate that. People on Skype can't see me pointing to my tie. Well, it's 6.30. All right, please, either on Skype or in person. I hope you've seen today how many times the book of Isaiah is referenced in the Gospel of John. It's a great companion. I strongly urge you to be with us if you can on Bible study on Thursday evenings at 6.30. All right, one more time. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very simple. that We are all born sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. God could have left us there to rot in the lake of fire, but he didn't. Instead, he gave us the most precious person in the universe, his one and only son, God in the flesh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and the sins of the world, to be buried, to show that he, in fact, died as a human being as well as being God, and you raised him from the dead on that third day as he had predicted, and so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, your son, as their savior, will never perish but have eternal life. We thank you, Father, for all these things. In his name, Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.